Washington is taking the press board to keep. Of all the movies we will discuss, Servant of the People 2 is the most politically relevant at the moment. The Russian language Ukrainian political satire literally launched Vladimir Zelensky to the presidency. It ran from 2015 to 2019. I highly recommend watching the entire TV series on Netflix. However, this is a movie podcast, so we will talk specifically about Servant of the People 2. The movie, which was released in 2016, before the second season, compiles multiple episodes from the middle of the series' second season and adds a few extra scenes. My guest today is Noah Frank. Noah is an American expat who lives and works near Darmstadt, Germany. He co-hosts the Cinema Joe's Film Podcast and a series of musical podcasts on progressive rock bands. More importantly, he works as a public sector social worker for refugees in Germany. Usually, we go into the cultural and sociopolitical zeitgeist. Since we are recording this in 2023, and everyone is aware of the Trump-Ukraine scandal and the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine, we aren't going to dive deeper than that. Instead, let's discuss why we're including Servant of the People in a list of American political movies. Noah, when I was developing this podcast, Alex Marcus sent me your name immediately for Servant of the People. Do you want to talk about why that is? Well, for uh, well, first off, thank you. I'm happy to be here as a guest in your podcast. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's nice to it's nice to kind of break out of the Cinema Joe's box and talk about something different for a change. Uh, but yeah, Alex reached out to myself and also to our um, to our other co-host for that podcast, Justin Mancini. And I think you're doing an episode with him later on as well, right? Yes, he was on our <clears throat> Dave podcast. Ah, right. And I believe he's coming back for another hmm. round. Ah, oh, great. No, I can't. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. Anyway, so I think the the first re the 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 first reason that that Alex thought of me and that I was interested in this as well is, uh, I mean, I I studied history and political science, and that was the the path that led me, you know, to Germany, where I you know live with my wife and and work, but also. Because I have been very directly affected by the war just professionally. Uh, I've been a social worker for refugees in Germany for, uh, let's see, uh, no, uh, the day of, we're recording this on April the 30th, tomorrow it will be exactly seven years. It was the 1st of May, 2016. A little bit of backstory to that. Uh, Any viewers, many viewers might, or listeners might remember this, and if not, you can actually easily look it up. There was a, uh, a huge refugee crisis connected mostly to the Syrian civil war that led to several million refugees entering Europe from 2015 to 2016, which of course led to a a huge personnel crisis where facilities and agencies and offices across Europe needed people to deal with this. I happened to, I just so happened in the middle of that crisis to be fired from my past job as a headhunter, which I hated and I was looking to get out anyway, Uh, but then they just up and fired me. So I was without work and not technically qualified for the position, technically, uh, for the position that I'm doing, they want people who have studied social work, like gone to university and studied how to do social work for different different groups of people, whether it's uh, orphan children or the elderly or drug addicts. Or there, there are different things you could focus on, including on refugee and asylum work. Uh, but there was I had need of a job and just on a personal level, I had been following the refugee crisis and wanted to do something. Uh and a number of local positions in local government opened up uh, and I just sent out a bunch of applications and the city, uh, the specific city I work at is the city of Weiterstadt, which literally translates to further city, 
I don't know who came up with that name. It's <laughs> even Germans think it's weird. Uh, but they took out a flyer in me, and I've been there ever since. So, <clears throat> uh, as I explained to to Allison a little bit um, before we started recording, through a, a weird quirk in German law and the fact that the German government and most European governments, uh, understandably so, just kind of opened their doors to Ukrainians after the beginning of the war, um, and just said, "Okay, you can just come here and you'll get a residency permit." I technically don't work with that many Ukrainians. So the the type of work that I do is for people who enter Germany and formally apply for a refugee or asylum status. And they then, so they have to send that application to the federal government. And then they're filtered through various layers of the bureaucracy until they're sent to the individual city or district where they have to live at first while their, their claim is being processed. Uh, and that's where my colleagues and I come in and help them adjust to really just just help them figure out whatever it is they need, no matter how small or banal, to kind of adjust to being in a different country where, in most cases, uh, they don't speak the language and have no previous experience with 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 German systems. And we help them to navigate that. Uh, so technically, because of that, because Ukrainians entering Germany were just given a residency permit, they never actually applied for asylum status. So technically speaking, we don't work with that many people from Ukraine, but because they are they are refugees in the real sense of the term that they are fleeing from war and, and deprivation. Uh, obviously, we we were drawn into helping our local government, helping the helping the city government deal with the influx, um, come up with cultural programs, come up with with meet and greets. Uh, in a lot of cases, literally just try to figure out places where people could stay so they don't that they don't end up homeless or on the streets. Um, <clears throat> Food programs, access to language classes, you know, getting kids enrolled in schools, access to doctors, the works. Uh, so there, there was a very immediate, direct impact that the war has had on our work, and and continues to have, even though, um, e even though the war has developed in in ways that have so far resulted in fewer Ukrainians um, since the since the initial the initial outbreak of the war. There have been fewer Ukrainians actually coming into Europe and, and more starting to return. Not we. There's not much sense in getting into the dynamics of that, of course, because that could change at any time between when we record this and when this comes out. And we're we're not going to do the right. crystal ball business today. It's also a film podcast and not a podcast specifically on the Ukrainian <clears throat> situation. Yeah, no, but so the, there has been there has been a direct impact for me, and just in the personal level, I was I was I I found the story of Zelensky fascinating, and I'd I'd been wanting to I'd been hearing about servant of the people like, oh, isn't it weird? He made a show about becoming president and then he became president. I've been wanting to yes. watch it anyway. Uh, so this was the perfect excuse to finally make the time. <laughs> yes. In the show, he won the presidency by 68 percent of the vote. In real life, it was 72 percent. Oh, my God. Really? I hadn't yes. Realized that. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, in the show is 78% in the in real life 73.22%. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, the show was it was an absurd in real life you're like, "Oh wow, Ukrainians wanted to change." <clears throat> but back to why we're doing this podcast. Um for me it's personal because I have Ukrainian family. My aunt was in Ukraine at the time the war broke out. Her daughter and daughter-in-law made it out of the country safely with their kids my cousin male cousin and my aunt's son-in-law are currently fighting for their country's freedom 
Um, I may not be close to this side of the family, but that connection led me to watch the entire series of Servants of People as soon as the war broke out. I was searching for answers. How did this comedian turn president become a symbol of democracy? Why is Putin trying to denazify a country that currently has a Jewish president and had a Jewish prime minister at the same time? The only other country with that is Israel for obvious reasons. And then oh, I didn't realize were, the prime minister was Jewish as well. It was like, a, the, like the real life prime minister. A short period of time, there was an overlap. Yes. And then and I had so many other questions that I'll never have a satisfying answer to. But most importantly, in terms of this podcast, how did a political satire lead to the actual election of its lead actor? As many people have said before, that would be like Americans electing Martin Sheen president because he played the role on the West Wing. Zelensky is doing his best as president in a war-ravaged country, but it's hard to escape the fact that his qualifications for the role are odd. This brings us back to Servant of the People 2, the movie we're discussing. So. Yeah, I mean, it's th- th- there's so many levels to this. That just make it so bizarre and fascinating because, because yes, on a, on a technical level, um, he wasn't really qualified for public service in the traditional way. Yes. Um, I mean, he does have a law like degree, it, so it's not like it was some random person who has no idea how government works. I mean, it's kind of if you really want to get meta on it and, and you know del- delve into the fact that the reason for the first impeachment of Donald Trump was over his attempt to blackmail Zelensky Donald Trump is also a figure who's only elected because of his his media popularity and also had yes. absolutely zero qualification but obviously <laughs> uh went in a wildly different direction from being currently according to current opinion polls uh the most popular uh, and best president that Ukraine has ever had uh, in the minds of the Ukrainian people. Whereas with Donald Trump, that is not the case, to put no, it very simply. We're, we're battling each other over that situation in the U.S. <laughs> so, you know, but it's, 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 there, there's so many bizarre layers to it. Um, but it really is like, like not being Ukrainian myself, I have to imagine that the show really tapped into, really tapped into, into the zeitgeist in Ukraine because, um, as I was explaining a little bit earlier, Ukraine is plagued by a long history of oligarchic corruption and inequality going back to um, the Soviet times when Ukraine was not independent. Well, technically, in the very technical sense, all of the Soviet nations were independent, but they never really were. Like that was that was a pure it was independence purely on paper. Yes. Um, and you know much more about this than I do. <laughs> so feel free to hop in when you feel the need to clarify. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, no, but like the the movie and the show really like they do. It's obviously a bit broader. I don't think you I don't think there was a point where I don't think it was ever literally three oligarchs uh, eating caviar and smoking cigars on a yacht as depicted in the show and movie. Like it's obviously the no. show and movie are, are, are simplifying a lot of those dynamics. But the basic gist is there is clear corruption and inequality and really like 98 of Ukrainians are fully aware of, we're always fully aware of that and we're sick of it, but there, there's so when you're caught up in that kind of system, it's hard to see a normal, easy way out. And that can, that like it, what the show depicts is this, ra- this kind, really a normal guy 
is able to kind of ride a wave at just the right moment and he's able to get through a crack in the system and the question then becomes okay is the crack going to snap shut on him which is very often the case like outside outsiders get into these sort of systems all the time but it's very easy for the system to kind of through inertia just kind of reassert itself yes. and the question of the movie becomes will this character um vasia vasia vasily uh, Vasily, sorry, I have I have a hard time with Russian Ukrainian names. I'm not going to lie. Um, is Vasily is the Gold system going to snap? Yeah, is the system going to snap shut around him, or is he actually going to be able to take that crack and widen it up and actually you know actually change something? This is going to get meta. I, I'm going to be like, um, oh, what's his name's assistant throughout the whole thing. Whatever you need a name, <laughs> Oksana. <laughs> yeah, Oksana. <laughs> it, you know, I don't well, as someone living in Germany, yeah, as someone living in Germany, that was fantastic. That whole sequence of the the drinking song from hell. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, Oksana, uh, do we want to start with Oksana? Oksana might be my personal favorite character in the show and movie. <laughs> Oksana yes. has her act together. Uh, she's great. Yes. Um, let's go in a more chronological order obviously these podcasts are never completely linear but we did watch season one which sets the stage for Vasily Golobrodoko's election as president of Ukraine with his profanity-laced speech that ended up on YouTube and went viral you watched the first season what was your thoughts on the first season just share them briefly because for me, the first season is not the best part of this series, but it's interesting enough where I kept watching it. I much prefer season two. Well, I have to say, having not yet seen season two, uh, but I do, I, I do want to make sure I do want to take the time to watch it. Um, although I, I do find the the movie does kind of bring things around with season one to to a certain extent, but I you do get the sense that they got a little bit more sure of themselves as the show went on. Like I felt that the comedy beats got better yes, uh, throughout the, the pace of season one and going into uh, going into the movie. Th there is a lot of, you know, putting things in place, establishing who certain characters are um, within the first half. That's obviously less comedy focused and it's more just, just establishing the show and, and the characters. Uh, but I found it to be a very fun, breezy watch. Like it was very yeah. easy to watch a couple episodes of it. Um, at a time it's it's definitely i kind of i i wasn't sure if it was going to be like more of a lighter show or if it was going to go in the direction of like veep or in the loop and be like really like funny but really really macabre and hard-hitting political satire that's not quite where the servant of the people goes it's definitely okay. it's so certainly far more family friendly than veep is oh yes but there is a song in the movie where the lyrics are translated as if you don't want to become a living corpse come to the concert of your favorite band together we'll sing and dream of a country that will never become a paradise which tells mm. you the mindset of the people of ukraine at least those in the series yeah well i mean there's and of course it is fascinating to consider the fact that the show and movie are entirely um are entirely in Russian because that in and of itself is this long, complicated history. U Ukrainian is its own language and yes. its own ethnicity has its own history. And like not, not just Ukrainian, but loads of 
languages and dialects and religious and ethnic identities throughout the Russian Empire and later the Soviet Union were consistently crushed, repressed, hidden. You know, the the government wanted to, you know, st- or or the government would try to actively stamp out certain groups. So the Ukraine yeah. Ukrainian language and traditions and cultures, um, like many many others within that region, really had to fight for survival but didn't always win out. Like there are huge segments of modern day Ukraine that are still majority Russian speaking. So there is this, there is this blending right. of being Ukrainian doesn't mean that you speak Ukrainian. And there were, there were in fact a whole generations of people who grew up within the Soviet union uh, who only started to learn Ukrainian when they were an adult. And like, that's, that's pl- so like the very fact that the show is in Russian is clearly uh is clearly like that stems from the partially from the fact that the show if you're going to make a show or a movie in Ukraine you want as many people as possible to be able to watch and understand it which means you kind of have to do it in Russian because that's the only way to guarantee that you can show it anywhere in the country and also, they have joke and they have jokes in the show like with the um the guy that um Vasiliev beats uh who's only like in the first episode I think he never comes back and you he, want to just he's, call him his nickname Vasya. Vasya. Yeah, I think that's easiest for me. Sorry. Uh, the guy who he beats is ranting and raving about how much he bled and sweat for his country. I even I even bothered to learn Ukrainian, damn it. And the prime minister's like, oh, then say something in Ukrainian. And he tries. He's like, don't make me speak a foreign language. Like, that's a very direct <laughs> reference to how Ukrainian was in heavy air quotes, like a foreign language to a lot of people within Ukraine for for a number of social and political reasons. So like there's yeah. a lot built into just the very the existence of the show and the nature of the show itself is and the movie reflect a lot of these complex interplays between ethnicity, language, culture, independent or not or, or not independent, you know, and what's what's more important? Is it more important, you know, to work for your country or to just look out for yourself? And I want to say I laughed, but I also cringed because that it's complicated. And I do want to point out that Vladimir Zelensky's first language was Russian. And he ended up learning Ukrainian more fluently when he became prime minister. Not prime That's minister, true. president. Uh, president. No, that is, that is true. We, had, we hadn't mentioned that yet, but that is true. He is one of many people in Ukraine who did not grow up speaking Ukrainian yes. and like, but, but of course that it, and that's, you know, sometimes that, and that's of course, one of the things that, you know, Putin has tried to, to use as propaganda against Zelensky and to, to promote the war effort. Like I'm just trying to protect Russian speakers because Ukrainians are hostile to Russian speakers, which I mean, is just patent bull crap, but Considering you know, Zelensky Zelensky himself is proof of how wrong that is. Yeah. He himself is living proof that that is just wrong. And also that Ukraine is not full of Nazis. No, well, the Nazis thing specifically, that has that also has its own like very big history where because of how particularly brutal World War II was in Eastern Europe and in this yes, and, and in the Soviet areas. Hit badly. I mean, not just Ukraine, like but but Ukraine was one of the the areas yeah. that suffered the most because Ukraine Ukraine Ukrainian agriculture is so rich. The Russian armies yes. burned Ukrainian farms to the ground so that Nazis would not be able to get food from there. And then the Nazis burned the same farms to the ground again when they were retreating so that the advancing Russian armies would not be able to get food from them. So there's this whole. So but that led into 
what what that led into is how a lot of Soviet, if you go back through the Cold War, like Soviet propaganda and a lot of the, pro, which is basically the same pro propaganda that Putin uses today, is built yeah. around we are the ones who beat the Nazis. We are the it, it it honestly it's a funhouse reversal reversal of what U.S. propaganda since World War II has been. Like U.S. has spent the past eighty years going, we're the ones who saved democracy. We're the ones who beat the Nazis. And of right, course, and Putin, then... Putin's propaganda is. We're the ones who saved the world. We're the ones who beat the Nazis. <laughs> so that's how, like, a, a lot of, it's not just Ukraine, a lot of other international actions have been domestically, internally justified through the Russian propaganda apparatus, through the funhouse mirror of, well, they're all Nazis, and we're we're the people who beat Nazis. So it's our job okay. to go out and beat these Nazis. So it's not... Like when, when Putin and his cronies say stuff like that, they're not talking to the international audience. They're talking to the domestic audience that for generations has been conditioned to to go with things like this under the guise of, well, you don't want the Nazis to win, right? Well, then you better shut up and do what we tell you. Got it. Whereas we're like... That, that's like the two-minute summation of 80 years of Soviet and U.S. international propaganda. Right. Whereas you're like, what Nazis are you talking about? Whereas they're thinking everyone who's not them is a Nazi. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's not like those are not statements for a Western audience. Those are statements for the domestic audience that Putin is trying to, you know, keep subservient um, or, those, or in know, the best case scenario, have them actually be convinced that Ukraine is full of Nazis, which unfortunately, in many cases works a lot like how I mean, it's like any cut sort of propaganda. You if you're successful enough, you get a critical mass of people who actually believe it. Yes. Uh, and then you don't have to try as hard to get them to go with you. Yes. And I do want to point out, even though this series is mostly in Russian, there are some circumstances like the news reporters and in some of the meetings where they are speaking Ukrainian and the languages, while not identical, are similar enough where you, if you know one, you can kind of understand the other. Well, they're both Slavic languages. Right. Uh, Russian, Ukrainian. We have one of my colleagues, uh, actually, my current job is Croatian and she speaks Croat and she's able to she's able to um, kind of communicate by speaking Croat with, with people from Ukraine who are who are only speaking Ukrainian uh, because Croat is also, you know, that that's part of former Yugoslavia. So like Croat, Serbian, Bosnian. Macedonian, um, and then also Czech, Slovakian, Polish, those are all Slavic languages and, and have that that similar that similar root. Uh, so I am not, for all my experience with languages, I'm not able to tell Russian and Ukrainian apart. Um, <laughs> but my colleague can. <clears throat> so and it's like that, that that's a big aspect in the movie as well. Like you have this this um, IMF head who's clearly German, Apfelweinsteiner. Yeah. Or Stuber. Ah, crap. Steiner. Steiner. <laughs> it's such a hilariously stereotypical German name. I know. <laughs> As someone living in Germany, I, I got a kick out of that. Um, but there is there there is like you know again just the fact that he had you know he says he has he has Ukrainian grandmother and there by he can speak Ukrainian. That's not that uncommon. There are you know cross there are you know cross ties between you know ger a lot of Germanic and Slavic peoples throughout history. Uh, so even that is entirely believable that, you know, a, a, an educated German working at the IMF happened to have a familial connection to Eastern Europe uh, and could speak Ukrainian. It's it's less usual that he would be able to speak it that fluently, but suspension of disbelief <laughs> and yes. all that. Yes, because they had to make it work somehow. Otherwise, they'd need another translator. 
And there's no better translator than Oksana. She's just the best. <laughs> oh, yes, she is. I have to say, I do... One, one thing that disappointed me a bit about the movie is we only have Sergei from the cabinet. Whereas one of the things I do, I did appreciate in the first season was I liked the sort of the, the cabinet of oddball misfits, like oddball incorruptible misfits that, um, that Vassier, that he, that he brings together. Um, and I did miss that in the movie, in the movie a little bit. Cause they're some of my favorite scenes in the show are of just them at the end of the day, like the five or six of them sitting around at the table and just, you know, eating and drinking and joking with each other like there's a real sense of camaraderie there oh it's not the movie doesn't suffer for that but it's like i i did miss it so i have two things to jump off of with that the first one is watch the first episode of the second season because the first time you watch it you'll be like what's going on here and then the second time you'll watch it and you'll have it in a completely new context and it's just about him and his gang of friends. Oh, okay. The movie suffers from the fact that I don't believe it was filmed as an actual movie. Because <laughs> when I first watched the series, I watched season two and then I watched the movie. The movie is just a bunch of episodes from like mid-season two mushed together in a way that they could theatrically release it. And there are some major plot holes in the movie, having seen the series and then watched the movie and then going back to watching the series. Oh, okay. Okay. So there are things that, as someone who didn't watch the series yet, you're missing. Uh, like the whole backstory with Anna. The... Yes. He just randomly mentions it, and I'm like, like, oh, she's in jail now. <laughs> like, like, wait, what, what did she do? And <laughs> well, I we knew what knew, she did. We knew what she was doing, but it was like, how did he know? How did he find out? Right. That's in season uh, two. Got it. I got it. Okay. <laughs> um, so the movie works, but I feel like it was more of mm. a way to promote season two rather than an actual movie meant to stand on its own. Ah, uh, okay. Well, it definitely, yeah. Hmm. Because the only content from the movie that doesn't make any appearance in the series is the car chase. So in the series... With, with the cake? With the cake truck? That, yes. The right. cake. Where they're like, we don't have ammunition. What am I supposed to do? Throw cakes at them? It's like, actually, that'll work. Oh, man. It's... <laughs> It's obviously not on the same level, but I saw this just after seeing John Wick 4. <laughs> and that's a completely different frame, completely different type of action. I'm like, well, John Wick probably could have used those cakes as like actual bombs somehow. He would have thrown the cake and the car would have literally exploded. Right, yes. Whereas here they're like, well, I mean, it's really cake, so. Well, I have to say, when wins- the bodyguard goes to town on the hallway full of guys, that was pretty dope. That was, oh, yes. uh, he finally got his Polish. moment. <laughs> I, I love how little the bodyguard talks. He has like entire conversations with people where he doesn't say anything. Yes. Well, I have to. So, so Anna is obviously played by a different actress in the movie. And I guess in season two as well. Right. Cause it was a different, there was the woman at the end of season one, who's clearly being set up as like, she's being sent in to seduce the president. Yes. I believe that is the case, even though I didn't think about it and she doesn't really, 
Like it didn't stand out to me that that was mm. a different actress. Because I like I I literally went straight from the last episode of of season one where she's there at the table with the cabinet to the movie, and I'm like, that's a different face. Like that isn't that's that's physically that's a different face. Yes. <laughs> what is going on? I had to like my brain had to adjust for a second. Yes, and then the opening scene of the movie where he is dreaming and pulls out the guns and starts shooting up parliament i was like buddy i feel you i know I the know. feeling <laughs> i get it <laughs> his flights of fancy are are as okay here's the historian side of me because so so the character because he's a history teacher yes. which you know already had me had me in his pocket he's constant he constantly has these dreams and or like waking fantasies of real life historical figures some of them were a little bit too obscure for me where where i assume he was talking to like figures from Ukrainian history yes, he that are just a little bit too specific for, 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 for me having occasionally generally read about history in that area. Right. Well, Abraham about, Lincoln does show up one. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln, Plato and Socrates, Louis yeah. the 16th. Although I have to pick a bone with that, with the Louis the 16th one, because Louis the 16th did not live to be that old. He was like in his, he was like 40 when he was killed and he did not willingly try to fix the country he wasn't the worst of dudes but louis the 16th like if you read the french revolution he was not like yay let's completely restructure french society so there are are a couple of of fancy exactly exactly and i have to say the the fake shot of him losing his head and having to like chase after his rolling head that was that was much darker than i expected that that that, up to that point that was like the 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 darkest the show had gotten (laughs) Season three, oh my god, uh, super dark. Because Goldberg Vasily ends up in jail. Oh, I, I saw that in a summation for the later season. I was like, wait, hmm, okay. And then it gets really weird because you see every part of Zelensky except the goods. Except the goods? <laughs> yes. Oh, 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 okay. Sorry, my brain had to catch up with Family you. Family jewels? <laughs> yes, gotcha, got it the heirlooms <laughs> where well, i'm just like i'm seeing way too much of like the president of ukraine at this moment uh, just like his bare ass on tv i'm just like what that was different standard europe has different standards than the states clearly uh, although i find it interesting of course they, they they bleep out a lot of the the russian swear words but of course i don't speak russian so i have like no context to that but that I've always been kind of of the mind that bleeping stuff out actually makes it funnier. Um, well, you've got um, Jimmy Kimmel and unnecessary censorship. Yeah. Account. <laughs> I love to bleep. Yeah, no, it's just it, because your brain has to fill in the gaps and you're, what, you what the imagination is always darker, scarier or just more bizarre than like anything you could actually come up with. Hey there, this is Josh. And this is Aaron. And we're the hosts of the Anniversary Brothers Podcast. The podcast where we talk about the anniversaries of your favorite TV shows and movies. Hey Aaron, what do Muppet Treasure Island, Arrow, and the birds have in common? Uh, they all feature bird puppets? Close. They're all movies and shows we've covered on the pod. Find our film podcast on the Pop Break Today feed. And find our TV podcast on the Pop Break TV feed. Thanks. Bye. Hello, I'm Daniel Cohen former film editor of thepopbreak.com, and I've got a Batman podcast for you. 
we discuss Batman's past, present, and future, and do a lot of rankings episodes. Yes, we rank the movies, villains, but that's not all. We even ranked all the Batman movie trailers throughout history. Yes, we ranked Batman trailers. I dare you to find another Batman podcast that did that. So join me and frequent hosts Alex Marcus and Bill Bakken, as well as a plethora of bat guests as we discuss Batman and plenty of DC on film as well. Also, fair warning, I'm a BBS fan, but don't let that scare you away. Trust me, I get mocked and ridiculed more than the Martha line for taking that stance. So relax and tune in on the last Tuesday of every month on the Pop Break Today feed. Another huge part is that Yuri Chuko is in prison in the movie, but is still in the pocket of the oligarchs. Also, I, while watching this, like, not only do I, like, love Zelensky as a comedian and wish, like, I had found him sooner and he was English language so I could understand him better, um, Stanislav Folkland, I love as an actor after watching this also. They have great chemistry between the two of them. Like, it, it becomes very, like, from the get-go, you're like, okay, there's going to be something wrong with this guy's character. He's not, he can't be that nice. Yes. Um, but it's, they have a great dynamic. And he also, it's, the, the, it's kind of a character archetype. Like, the, you know, the, the, the corrupt, not really nice guy who, you know, under the right set of circumstances, he's willing to, you know, help the good guys out. Like that's there. You see that in a lot of different types of stories. Yes. Uh, but he plays it to a T here. And also, I have to say that whole thing about he, you know, you initially see him in a jail cell, but then you find out that's just a front for the public eye. And he, I mean, he's still technically in prison, but he's imprisoned in like a super luxurious villa, uh, yes. even if he has to drink the bad scotch. Uh, right. It's only 12 years quotes. old. But that's like, again, that too is a reference to how even in the very rare cases when public officials, not this isn't just the story in Ukraine, like this is in a lot of countries that has deep entrenched corruption. There's this recurring theme of even on occasions where this guy or that dude get, gets kicked out, gets arrested, um, gets knocked down a peg. They don't really land as hard as like normal regular people would under the same circumstances like it's a, e even in like cases of home arrest or stuff like that it almost always ends up being far far more cushier and more luxurious yes. than 99 percent of the human race would if would ever experience right it's like oh your house arrest in your 12 bedroom mansion okay <laughs> yeah exactly like oh how to <laughs> Not to draw comparisons to the COVID-19 pandemic when, like, Ellen DeGeneres was in her giant mansion being like, oh, I'm so alone. What do I do with my time? This is awful. This is the worst thing ever. Right. And not acknowledging her privilege and the fact that yeah. A lot she's of that not vibe. about to lose that home. Yeah. And it's kind of, but at the same time, it's kind of appropriate how petty it is, what it is that gets him to turn. It's just he assumes that he, that at some point he'll be back in. And then he's just told, no, we're done with you. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to send you all to hell. <laughs> right. It's and so then, petty. But he insists on attending his own funeral. He would. He would. I, I mean, know. I think all of us, if I think most people, if given a chance, would, would maybe do pull something like that. <laughs> just to see. Yes, but also he hides things to blackmail the oligarch, oligarchs in the cemetery um statues and to be fair i mean it's a it's not the bad it's not the worst hiding space 
No, it's not. I mean, he is a very... Choco is a very smart character. And it's also a really funny character because he does get his comeuppance several times. Towards the end, he's more on the good side than the bad side because he just gets fed up. But his reasons for joining the good side are not really... Oh, no, he he's not altruistic at all. No! But I, I was dying during the scene with um, the bodyguard keeps sitting down on the buzzer. Oh, yeah. He's yes. down at the bar trying to drink. And all the women around think he's a dirty old man. No, it looks like he's like he's literally hip thrusting at the train attendant. <laughs> <sighs> but at that point, well, I think at, again, it's not altruism. At that point, he realizes like, oh, OK, no, like I'm in deep enough where I will die if uh, I don't help this guy succeed in taking these people down. So I might as well stick it out and see it to the end. But but then, but, but with the movie, you can definitely tell, OK, as, especially as far as the comedy beats were concerned, they were on much surer footing at this point. Oh, yes. That's the beginning and, of the show. And Choco's various disguises. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Twain. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Vasa thought it was a woman at first. And just... Okay. Uh, we've had that joke so many times. That's... I, know. I, I mean, there may be a couple part. There, there are a couple parts of the humor in the movie in the show that don't age well don't trans like the episode in the show that you know makes a big thing about uh, the transgender dutch ambassador yes remember that episode okay. that that was the one part where it's like okay now i'm just cringing a bit <laughs> inside yeah, i mean anything that is more than a year old is going to have something where you're like Ooh, yeah we've evolved it's comedy you know it's true what they say comedy it's it's so it is one of the hardest it's one of the hardest things to make comedy that ages well. It's like yes. the, the few bits of comedy that are just as fresh and funny today as they were 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. That's rare. It's worth holding on to. Yes. And there was the... I don't remember where I was going with that. Evenia for your thoughts? Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was playing on the Apenny for your thoughts joke, and I said Evenia. Oh. Yeah, considering the currency in most of the film is actually dollars. I mean, that's, again, that's that's also very, and that's something that I think, so something, you know, just going to the show and the movie as a whole, that something I found very interesting coming from where I am, where I am in the public sector, I am, you know, do, I mean, I don't have to do air quotes. I am in the system. I am a part of the system with with the work that I'm doing. Um, what I think what what I what I think is captured very well in the show in the movie, and it's it's the thing that in real life does plague a lot of the occasions where outsiders or reformers do manage to break into a, a uh, into the inside of a system, and are often stymied. Is it's really really hard to change systems and institutions that have been been around long enough, and where there are vested interests in their powerful interests that are are vested in not changing anything. It's hard to do that. So, and, and people, and it's really at the end of the day, it's just human nature. People get tired very quickly. And, you know, there are, there are constant references in the show. Like you had two months, it's been a hundred days, like the hundred days thing. That's another, I don't know if that was an explicit reference to American politics because American politics is very obsessed with the hundred days. Yes. Framework. First hundred days, your agenda, you either get yeah, it which, done or which, you don't. 
which like like it was a pithy thing FDR came up with to to show how much he was going to try to get done. But it's been taken as like you have 100 days to do anything. And if you don't do it in 100 days, you're a lame duck for the rest of time. And it's like yeah. that's just not how that's not how things work. And and I'm I'm confronted constantly in my work with both clients of ours and like just the regular German citizenry who when you get to them, when they come to you with a complaint and you're you kind of dig them like, OK, what is it you're upset about? You realize okay, they don't actually know how all of these bureaucratic structures work. And they're like, they're ang they're projecting their anger onto me or onto our local mayor for issues that neither I nor the mayor of this small town have any power to actually resolve. Like it's politics at a much higher level that establishes these, these structures that I'm working with him. And it's like, if you want, if you want to tell me that the systems isn't entirely fair or efficient, like I'll agree with you, but like, I'm not the per like it's not like I'm not the person who put it that way. So it's like you you see a lot of that where he comes in, you know, riding this wave of optimism, but very quickly is confronted with, you know, the IMF is there, the European Union is there demanding conditions. That is that that that's probably the most realistic part of of the movie actually is the IMF setting very stringent conditions. Yeah. They meet the conditions and they say, "Okay, here's some money and here are even more conditions." Like that's a constant that's a huge point of criticism towards the World Bank, the IMF, the EU, um, and just the United States and and just and and most other international institutions. This constant, oh, you're down on your back, well here are more conditions before yes. we, you know, give you a a little pinky to to maybe help you help you pull yourself up with. And to push against that effectively takes time. And people get tired very quickly. Yes. And, and you know and the movie, the main two things were the IMF and then Goberdoko and Chirko going around the entire country to Zaporizhia, Kharkiv, and a bunch of other places with the, I believe they were governors of each state. And just yeah, trying so something to along the lines of governors. Chaos by tricking them into thinking things. And like there was one where they arrive on the train. And the governor is like, no, like we can't have all the pomp and circumstance for this president because he doesn't believe in it. So it's like the ninth place soccer team. I, I love then, how who who's the one recurring reporter looking at the cast name? Oh, she's not listed in the main cast. No, Yada main. Yada or, or or Yama is the name of the reporter, the female reporter who like is, is always a, a, a bug in, in everyone's side. Like yeah. she steps out into the middle of the pomp and circumstance, doesn't even like she doesn't even look first. She steps out and is immediately complaining about all the pomp like she was expecting it, <laughs> like she was already preparing inside the train to come out and start complaining about it. Yeah. And just it, perfect, perfect comedic timing right after the guy said, if any journalist films this, I'll kill them. And she just steps right out. <laughs> it's like, look at all this crap. What's right. going on here? And it's the adventures of Choco and Goberdoko, and it leads to funny things like him, like Goberdoko getting so annoyed with the governor that they run through a sprinkler and he's hitting him with the toy sword. That was fantastic. Because Yuri's plan, the plan is a good one. Like, like Guile, you know, using, using Guile and, you know, keeping one hand clenched behind your back to kind of get people to go at each other's throats and weaken each other. That's good politics. But the corruption is just so in your face that he can't control himself anymore. 
Yes. Does does he have a water pistol at some point? Like he's shooting after him with a water pistol? It looked like he had a water pistol or something that he was throwing at it. Or, or, or water balloons. He grabbed a bunch of water yes. balloons. Yes. <laughs> another instance of the comic timing. There's another moment in from the show, because uh, there's, there's the red-haired woman from the IMF who appears in season one. Yes. And then the friend of hers who's from the EMBF, some some acronym for a bank. And there's this phenomenal, I forget if it's episode 16, 17, 18, 19, some, somewhere in like the, la the last third or last quarter. It's like a Scooby-Doo sequence of of her chasing after Zelensky and him trying to pop in and out of offices. Yes. And then in one case, they're literally, it's literally Scooby-Doo style, like in one door, out the next door, and back through the same yes. door, and then hiding behind a plant. The other person runs in a circle. And he eventually gets so drunk, he agrees to terms that he's like, wait, what? <laughs> what did I do last night? That was after he gets drunk. Oh, okay. Oh, that was another great bit with Sergey, where he just, Sergey's like, is cluing him in on his phone. And again, Sergey is just looking at him and he just keeps holding up his phone and you don't even see him like scroll through the videos. He just holds up his phone and in perfect chronological order, the next humiliating video plays. Yes. And you just see, like, you just see Vesely's skull, soul, like, exit his mouth and float up into the ether as yes. he's watching all this this horrible bacchanalia of drunken raving oh man now the the laughs to be had in the show and the movie are are, are there although it is it's weird to watch now because there's this whole shadow hanging over it of like uh you poor summer children there's worse coming at you guys like in real yeah. life yes and there are things like the first or second episode of the first season like he uh Vasily Golbrodoko is getting all of the like perks of being the president of Ukraine and he's just like why are these expensive suits and with the watch like Putin Hublo which it's a Hublo watch but it sounds like F Putin in I believe <laughs> Russian or Ukrainian I don't remember which one there, I, I'm so that sure was there very was... pointed yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of of linguistic jokes or word plays or, or also like I'm sure there were like characters or certain performances that were designed to be references to like very specific uh, cultural or political figures um, within Ukraine. But that that's always that's always par for the course. If you're right, watching something in another language, you're like, OK, there's probably some, some something that I'm going to miss. But if if the quality's there, it's going to shine through no matter what. Yes. Or like the fact that the the one guaranteed way he can get a room full of people to shut up is to just yell, "Putin has been Putin's been kicked out." And everyone's yeah. like, "What?" You're like, "Kidding." Yeah, it works every time. I can't believe it. That always works. Like, what did they learn? I got that whole subplot in the first season of him be like, "I don't need a bodyguard. Who's gonna who, who's here who's gonna wish me harm?" I'm like, Vasily, my man. Everyone. There's, there's one person at least who wants you very dead. Take the bodyguards. Yes. And then there was the scenes of the oligarchs, which you don't really see their faces in season one. I found that so weird. It's like, well, they were shadowy figures, but, but there are scenes where you see their face, like in a mirror in the background. I'm like, why are we making a big deal out of this? Like, I don't know. <laughs> and then one of those scenes, and it's got to be a cultural thing, because I think it was Mamatov talking to Roisman, two of the three oligarchs, 
was like, have you been eating too much matzah? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I know there's the Jewish dish matzah, but I don't know. Like, it was spelled matzah. No, he's Jewish. Like, oh, that okay. oligarch is Jewish. Okay, I didn't catch on to that. I don't know that. I don't. Again, it that beca- might be a I cultural thing. Like maybe there's later on when he tries to. I think it was in two or three where he escapes to Israel, just basically like a rabbi. Ah, okay, okay. I mean, I don't know. That that might be another thing, like eating too much of certain types of food thing, and that I don't know, making a person crazy or something like that. But I'm just like weirdly anti-Semitic, but don't know what's going on. Yeah, I don't like no that like that's the sort of thing where I just I lack the background to say like is that anti-Semitic yeah. or is that like a saying if you eat too much of a certain type of like I just don't know. Right? Is it a cultural thing or is it yeah? Yeah, cultural, and cultures like, and religious groups have their own inside jokes as well that you know. Right, and then you don't need there, to be privy to if you're for, if you're on the outside. No, and then there's the whole thing where it's not immediately made clear, but because they're Ukrainian. And speaking Russian, they go with their first name and their patronomic rather than going Mr. or Mrs. whoever. Yeah, I had to Which, adjust that. I was like, why are they saying everyone's full name all the time? That's so many syllables. Yes, and it's like the full name minus the last name. And it's like, oh, this is how you address people, especially in scenes in season one with the students where I'm like, why are they addressing him by his first and middle name from an English language perspective and then it's like oh that's how they show respect yeah I mean that's one of the things you can pick up on when you when you when you watch non-media that's not native to yourself yes. and to your own experience um and it, it's interesting to it's, it's just, that's one of those things the things that's interesting to pick up on I have to say something else that w- was clearly missing in the movie uh, as well was the background of the family did, did does the family get any more development in season two? Because season one, they're very classic. Like, Vasily is the one decent-headed person. And the rest of them are just corrupt and banal as, as all get out. So, Sveta and his dad stick around. Hmm. His mom and his son go to Italy and just okay. stay there. And then, obviously, his son... Well, son goes with his mom, and his wife becomes prime minister. His ex-wife. His ex-wife becomes prime minister. Ah, okay. So, so she they... continues on as a character. I, because I, that was another. I like the dynamic that they like very believable ex, but not hate ex dynamic between those two. Right, where it's like I want you to be happy, but I'm gonna be kind of jealous if you date other people. But it's also. Well, they both end up dating people in government who are corrupt. It Where you are, it doesn't become clear that Dimitri is corrupt yet, but he is. Well, I mean, it's very obvious that he's at, at, the le- at least very passive and complacent at the start, if not actively corrupt. Like, that's not a shock to me, you know? Yes, uh, he kind of makes Yuri look like a good guy by the time we're done with him. Oh, <laughs> Does he at least get the boot from Olga at some point? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Good. Oh, yeah. Well, just as soon as he uses his child to to keep himself from getting fired, like when he was obviously about to get fired, it's pretty, it's pretty exploitative. Right. Yes. 
where I'm like, even Chuka was just like, my mother's dead. And he's like, no, I was just saying that. So you didn't look at me like I was crazy for doing what I was doing. Because then <laughs> in the movie, you meet his mother. Mm. Oh, oh, wow. The clothing store. Yeah. And then Vasily is just like, what? Wait, you said she was dead. Nope, she's not dead. I was just saying that. <laughs> uh, no, it's he, he, he's he. It's that certain type of just world weary. I've seen it all and nothing phases me. <laughs> Except, well, the one thing that phases him is someone who really is, in some cases, too, like, too good for his own good. You know? Yeah. But... Yeah, this it was a real treat to finally sit down and and watch this, and it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see how how people view it going on, and, and of course, the, I mean, obviously that's gonna be very heavily tied to how the war in Ukraine and Zelensky's future plays out. Yes, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm just I'm very hoping that he gets the chance to just retire in peace and never pay for a drink for the rest of his life within yes. Ukraine. Yes, and we. But it's we, not our decision. No, we don't know. And there are also, besides the Russian language, other aspects of certain of the people that didn't age well for a Ukrainian audience because of some of the things that have been weaponized, phrases that have been weaponized during the war, from what I've been reading. And then... What sort of phrases? So, Grant, I'm going to be honest. Like, I was reading... TV tropes, which is not the most reliable of sources, mm. but you know there are enough people who go on here who try to help you understand media where mm. it's not awful. I don't know how familiar you are with it. Uh, not familiar at all. Yeah, so it's a wiki, so anyone can edit it, ah, edit okay. it, but people tend not to just make stuff up. Mm. So on the website it says. The ho-hall speech hasn't aged well because ho-hall is widely used as a Russian slur against Ukrainian, whereas in the in the series it's meant as yokel. And then the accent. Ah, right. The yokel. The 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 yokel. I saw that as kind of the show getting serious for a moment. Like I I assumed that was a scene that like it got serious for a moment. And that's the show kind of saying, like, look, people, this is how we end up in a mess like this. But I guess that's probably a linguistic thing that I that I would obviously not be attuned to. Yes, yeah. a lot of the things that didn't age well are linguistic things that we can't pick up as English speakers. Yeah. No knowledge or very little yeah. of the language. And what was the other one? Um, or the other point? So then the other one was calling someone a bumpkin for using a ukrainian accent and then there was a third one of kokols which is now used by pro-western eastern europeans to mean mysterious russian soul to highlight the same backwards traits plus jingoism and imperialism and mm. the mindset of russians i so mean there are I phrases think, yeah words that have changed meaning just in the last three four years I mean, but for me, that's that's all. All of that is is further evidence of how uh, the situation you, in Ukraine should should be taken as as uh, among many among many other things. It should be an opportunity for people to to remind themselves of the fact that um, questions a lot of questions of identity, especially language, uh, language, race, and ethnicity, are never are are not never, but in many cases they're they're not nearly as clear cut. No, uh, 
like and like and and we were talking about this earlier like this dichotomy between you know if you really wanted to survive and get ahead and be successful you know you spoke you know you you didn't bother with ukrainian you only learned and spoke russian like that's a real like historical dynamic that ukrainians are you know are confronting and you know th this question th these questions of how much like and these are questions that obviously like people within Ukraine have to have to deal with on their own terms with these questions of like, to what extent can someone consider themselves truly patriotic Ukrainian, even if they don't speak any Ukrainian and things like that, or um, like, like that's, that that's part, that's <clears throat> one of the many things that the war that this show deals with and that the war has thrown into sharp relief. Um, I mean, the overwhelming effect of the war has been to increase patriotic feelings, even amongst people who speak much more Russian than they do Ukrainian. Um, so even in these majority Russian uh, parts of Ukraine, you know, polls, at least the polls that, to my knowledge, are considered re um, reputable, have shown that sense of identity as Ukraine has been strengthened, even if it's ev even in the areas that are much less Ukrainian speaking. But still, there there was up until the start of the war, there was this dynamic of well-educated, successful elite Russian language, mm -hmm. country, you know, country, rural, non-educated, less successful Ukrainian like that's that that's a dynamic that you see in a lot of different a lot of different places in the world it's not dissimilar in um in a lot of areas of China where to be successful to be a lead you have to speak Han Chinese and whatever your local dialect is even even if it's a, a completely different even if it's a, a non-Chinese language entirely gets kind of pushed to the side because if you want to be upper class you got to speak Han Chinese you know or even like standard you know moscow russian within russia is preferred over other local languages and dialects so that's that's a real dynamic and it's you you always have want to avoid falling to the trap of okay you have one ethnicity one language one yeah. religion one identity it, it's never that it, it's almost never that clear cut no because uh, borders yeah. are arbitrarily drawn and that ends up with issues like the donbass region is mostly ethnically russian but it was part of ukraine and it's a disputed territory at the moment yeah and and we'll just and all especially when you're dealing with cases of colonialism and imperialism and i i was at a uh, I, I could i was actually at a conference for refugee research um in chemnitz in germany last year and i was able to to convince my boss to let me go there as like basically as a business trip um and one of the the speeches there I found really illuminating um, was about you know touching on the 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 issue of Ukrainian refugees, saying that we need to we we need to expand our our considerations of what parts of the world have experienced imperialism and colonialism. And he made a very I found a very apt comparison, you know, examining Ukrainians having suffered imperialism under under Muscovite Russian ideology and also the irish experiencing colonialism under english rule for many hundreds yes. of years and those are and again this is part of the kind of the the blindness where you've especially in the west you know there's this automatic refugee means non-white people somewhere else but not from yeah. here whereas you know if you're and Unless like you're as someone who has too. yeah and as someone who is um who who you know has you know, a quarter of my family history is Irish. You know, if you're you're living in Ireland, especially Northern Ireland, 
you have a very, very good argument to make that you have suffered as much as anyone from, you know, colonialist attitudes and Ukrainian and Ukrainians, uh, the, the Baltic states as well. Um, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia were also countries that uh, particularly suffered under Russian domination for many hundreds of years. And that's why the Baltic states and Poland were the first countries to jump up and say, we can't ignore Ukraine because we know if Putin gets away with it there, he's coming for us next. Um, So that's why, you know, that's why there is, you know, the the Polish government has been adamantly against accepting refugees of any kind, except Ukrainians. There's a little bit of hypocrisy there, of course, um, on the side of the Polish government, which, you know, frustrates me. But on the other hand, I, I am kind of grateful that at least in this case, they're on the right side of the issue because, you know, the 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 Polish and, and the um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia and the Baltic states, those have kind of been the countries within the European Union, really kind of strengthening the spines of Germany and France and and uh, uh, Germany and France in a lot of cases, uh, and really pushing for you know don't sweep this under the rug, don't don't just punt on the issue and say oh Zelensky and Putin have to figure it out, like we need to stick together on this. Um, and I don't know what european news looks like but i have noticed in the american news media like i have to go digging to find out what's going on like if i turn on the nightly news there is a good chance there may be nothing about ukraine so i think we've already started letting it become background noise that always to a certain extent that always happens um even even with war uh, simply because if you're not directly if it's not in, in your face and again, this this ties into what I was saying earlier about how if you're in a position like uh, the character Vasily in the show or Zelensky in real life, you come in as an outsider, you have a chance to change something, but people get tired really fast because it's like, have things changed yet? No. Well, screw you. You failed. Yes. Um, that's again, that's just kind of how human psychology works. And it's the same even if there's the the the, the brain just kind of adjusts to the new normal. And accepts that, oh, yep, the war, the war is going on and it's the war, yes. but I don't need it to, I don't want it to be, head, we don't want it to be headline news anymore. It's just, it's the war, like, let us know if one, if, which, if one of the presidents gets assassinated and then we'll care again. Yeah. You know, cause it's kind of, and I, I've, I've seen this, <clears throat> I've also experienced this firsthand in my work because when I, when I first started this job, it was right when the refugee crisis was acute and fresh uh, and just, and at the forefront of everyone's mind and there was this huge out uh like swell of popular public attention um and and to and a lot of popular support for refugees that kind of lasted for but after you know six to 12 months it just kind of dissipated and and after that point it was like oh why are you still talking about that like that's over that was last year like everything's fine now right and people would just not think about it further and then that changed again after um, the Taliban took power over in Afghanistan, and there was an, a, a new influx of of Afghani's coming into Europe. Then it was forefront news again for a couple months, and then started to die down. Um, and then, of course, after the start of the war, for about six months, there were there was this huge, overwhelming like we were we were getting emails and calls every day. How can we help? How can we help? Where where are the Ukrainians living? What can we do? And then, honestly since last summer nothing like the email chain that we set up for us internally for like requests to to assist ukrainians that's been dead for six months wow because it's just not 
it's not like the the brain just moves on and people move on and most people don't stick around to deal with the real nitty-gritty of okay how do we actually change something deal with this crisis you know provide for the people that for for these people that have appeared there because that's hard work and that 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 takes dedication and commitment that and you know it's not it's not fair to get too critical of people for this because you know you have to go about your daily life and and focus on surviving you know but you you can't just drop most you know 99 percent of the human race can't just drop their day jobs and their daily concerns with friends and family and you know feeding the kids and you know going to school going to work so it is understandable but but there is this whenever a fresh wave of enthusiasm comes we're kind of at this point we're kind of like well, we'll 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 take we'll we'll take the benefits for our clients we can get from this, but let's not build up our hopes that this is that you know yeah this is going to change things thing too much because it's it's a much slower process. Yes. And you know war and you know even if it, it's a very even in cases where there's a very clear case of there's a very clear aggressor and you know the Ukraine needs to get through this, it, it's not going to happen in a day. It's not going to happen in a week. It's it's not going to happen in a month. You know. It's just that that's not the world we live in. No, it is not. Do you have any other final thoughts on this before we close out? No, so I, I think we've we, we've touched on in this discussion, we, we've touched on a lot of ways that, you know, you know you, you've got this show and this movie that are primarily a comedy. And as we've established more, a lot of the time, a bit more breezy and lighthearted than you know much more much darker or bleaker political yeah. satires at least at least as far as the, uh, the first season of the movie goes like you, you said season three gets a bit darker yes um, and i would say i've been watching a lot of <clears throat> british political satire they're like yes minister and yeah the new statesman which are more in the same vein as this where it's like it's making deeper points but it's still a broad comedy on the surface yeah, so like even even at the lighter parts of the show, uh, the either either the show itself explicitly or if you just look at how the show is produced, the language it's in, and and the timing, because uh, of course this was all this show was being produced and released in the way not prior to Zelensky becoming president, but in the like in the immediate aftermath of the initial revolution and crisis in the Crimea, and yeah. the start of actual military fighting. So there was already basically a state of war going on within Ukraine as the show is being created. Um, th- there's th- this show is a doorway to a lot of complicated questions of, uh, you know, the, the cycle of history, cultural, personal, cultural, ethnic, national identities, um, you know, the complexity of being a struggling, being a country that's not, you know, wealthy and established in the current international system and having to, you know, he he demands of you know these powerful mysterious international corporations or or corporations or institutions that feel like they have a right to just waltz in and say do this 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 and this and then they hightail it out of out of there right and it hurts the grain industry and industries that ukraine relies on in favor of what the organization thinks yeah so there's there's all sorts of of things that this show offer you know provides a doorway into uh, even as it's like doing Scooby-Doo references, you know, with it, with its physical comedy uh, and that, you know, that makes it something special. I, I, you know, it's still fresh in my mind. I'll have to let the show marinate for a bit. And, you know, when I have the time uh, continue on to watch the second season, I I'm interested to see how this show ages, what, how my thoughts of it age um, and what it's, 
and and what its legacy ends up being. Of course, the legacy of the show will, will probably be very closely tied to Zelensky's real life legacy as Ukrainian's president. That's all. Yeah. That is a that is a very open book right now. So I, I don't I don't want to get too ahead of myself and make any predictions about that. Right, because as everything uh, goes south, the show will become very sad. a very tragic. Yeah. Yes. Which I, I hope I hope not. I, I hope I not. I'll I'll say that. That like I'll, I'll leave with that. That I I hope that that doesn't end up being the case. Um, that's all I feel safe saying. Anything more than that is going to be right. Yes, right now potentially sticking still, my whole foot in my mouth. Right now we can still appreciate it on some level for what it is, but this will definitely be a historical document five, ten, oh yeah, fifty oh, yeah. years from now, where people go back, look at it, and either say like what went wrong what went right what happened what is this document telling us about this time in ukraine and western europe yeah so i would i you know i'm i'm grateful that i i'm grateful for the fact that netflix has kept it um on its program given how you know how how callously a lot of streaming services are just getting rid of stuff at the moment um well ukraine this is, I mean, Netflix did get rid of it and then brought it back because everyone's like, you had it when he got elected and now we want it. So for yeah, a while, oh, they true. only had the first series season. Then they got the rest of the season. Uh, OK. Yeah. So it's I, I think I, I think it is. I, I think it's I would consider it a, it a must see at this at this current point in time. Um, th- this is a show and movie that is are worth watching and absorbing and talking about. Um not just you know partly because of its current relevance but not just because of that it's a great political satire even outside of the context yeah no like i said just a lot even a lot of the physical comedy like the president literally trying to run away from a bank creditor on his heels it's it's on a purely surface level it's you know broad physical slapstick but you know that's that's kind of how it is in a, in a metaphysical sense. You know, you've got the the debtor, the yeah. the creditors running after the debtors, and you know, trying to avoid it, but not make it seem like you're you're actively trying to avoid paying the debt. You know, wh- whether or not you're justified or not justified in that. But that's right. like, He's like we need another day, just another day. Yeah. <laughs> or just say, no, it's tradition. <laughs> God, the, yeah, that, again. That was. That had me that I was almost crying. It happened so often. Like, how are half the IMF delegation not dead at this point? And you had Oksana at one point, like with fake hands behind him <laughs> to fake him out. We didn't talk enough about Oksana. Oksana's she's the queen of the we show. Talk about Oksana now. I I was I mean, d- does season two involve her and Sergey having a romantic subplot? Yes. <sighs> okay. Like, is it handled well? Because it sound, it, it's very cliched for that to happen. Yes. That doesn't make it bad automatically, but it's like, you, you got to at least try to make it worthwhile. It's there, but it's not, like, if do you know about A, B, and C plots? Yeah, yeah. I would say, like, this is a C or a D plot. Like, it's there, like, okay. yes, they're a couple, but it doesn't become about the fact they are a couple. Okay. Because it's, I kind of... <laughs> They they do have a great dynamic of just you know the 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 capable competent supremely talented assistant and the absolute goober of a boss yes who doesn't know what he's and is as kind of is really kind of a buffoon 
Um, and yeah. not always the nice kind of buffoon. No. <clears throat> okay. So, I, yeah, so I think we can wrap up at this point. Is there anything you want to mention about what's going on in terms of your writing or things that people can find you doing online? Sure. Well, at the moment, uh, Cinnamon Joe's is on hiatus, but one of my co-hosts uh, from that show and I, Justin Vancini, we are in the process of doing our second musical podcast. We did uh, a podcast last year, or, oh God, it might be two years ago at this point, where we went through the discography of the prog rock band Genesis, and we're now doing the discography of another prog rock band, uh, Rush, a Canadian prog rock band. We're uh, we're in the process of finishing up that, uh, so that will be on the uh, available on Anchor and on thepopbreak.com. We're it, we're talking about another installment to that, but that's not set in stone yet. In terms of stuff that I do on my own, I still have a written blog at francenoir.blogspot.com. That's just the the blog software that Gmail has offered for forever, and I've been using that for ten years. Um, Maybe I'll get an yeah. actual website someday. But for now, that's the spot where you can find just my thoughts written down, um, mostly about movies, but I've been branching out into into other topics over the past few years as well. I am, as of this recording on Twitter, but who knows how long Twitter will continue to exist. Uh, <laughs> I know. The blue checks are disappearing. If the fiery apocalypse, uh, or, or if the fiery apocalypse finally comes, I might actually start using Letterbox. I've not found the time to to actually use my Letterbox account yet. Maybe one day. Okay, so thank you again, Noah, for joining us, sharing your experiences as an American living in Germany and working with refugees. Some of them Ukrainian, a lot of them not because of the Ukrainian status in Germany. Um, for everyone who has been listening, I'm Allison Lips. Please um, find us online. Look out for the next episode, and we'll see you next time.